Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. Today, JP and I are going to dig into the topic of allergies, asthma, and eczema. And you may say, how are these connected? Like, what a random grouping of different medical conditions. Well, we're going to teach you today that it's not all that different. And the mechanism by which each of these conditions occurs tends to be very similar and, in fact, is quite similar and can be regulated by the vagus nerve. So we will get into some of the ways that we can positively affect allergies, asthma, and eczema. Great to see you, JP. Great to be here. Great topics. Wonderful. So why don't we start off just talking about allergies, because this is an important one by which vagus nerve stimulation was first kind of discovered and I guess first looked into through the research. Yeah, certainly the research that we did. I think allergies sort of fall into different categories. You've got sort of anaphylactic reactions. You've got sort of more hay fever-like reactions. You've got delayed onset reactions. And so there's a variety of different categories that we can put them in. And there's different cells within the innate immune system that regulate the responses of each of those. But at the highest level, what we can say is that it's your body interacting with something that is causing it to have an allergic response and the allergic response being defined as a almost autoimmune-like response in that it can be stress that causes an allergic-like response. So it doesn't have to be an outside physical thing. It can be stress alone that causes rashes. It can cause hives. It can cause things that you typically associate with an allergy. And you're right that the work that we did to develop vagus nerve stimulation ultimately into headache did start with looking at anaphylactic reactions and then ultimately looking at asthma and that we've got some great stories to talk about there. But a lot of that actually, well, a lot of that reasons for our getting into this started from the 1960s and early 70s, where people were looking at anaphylactic reactions and sensitization to things, because you can actually make an animal have an anaphylactic reaction to something if you properly sensitize the animal. And we were looking at the role that the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve played in those models where it had already previously been shown to have an impact. So we we're trying to figure out how best to use the vagus nerve to treat anaphylaxis versus cause it or otherwise. So fascinating stuff. On the research side, and I know this is not entirely on topic, but I'm intrigued to hear what were some of the tools that you guys used to sensitize an animal to create that anaphylactic or predisposed towards an anaphylactic reaction? Sure. So there's a variety of different ways to do it, but the sort of the classical way is sort of the dual root exposure of an allergen to the animal. So you can do it through dietary and then an injection or an injection and a cutaneous exposure. You can use certain adjuvants that will trigger your body to respond to that allergen that you're trying to get the animal to be sensitized to in a way that makes the animal become sensitized where they might not otherwise. You know, the classic example that actually affected my family is my younger daughter had the experience of having eggs for the very first time in her life about two weeks after she had had vaccine that was egg-based. So where they had incubated the vaccine in hen albumin. And so as a result, she had an injection exposure followed up by a dietary exposure and it caused her to have, have an anaphylactic reaction. Now, do we know that that anaphylactic reaction wasn't already there? Maybe, but it's more likely that she was predisposed to it and it was triggered by that just random occurrence of having a you know a childhood vaccine and having an exposure to dietary eggs simultaneously. So, but that's the way you can make an animal sensitized. Yeah, it, I was going to bring up that concept, but it seems very much like a let's prime the immune system towards this. And then when we do expose it in a different or alternative path, 
we're likely to create that allergen or allergic style response. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it can actually probably even happen in utero. So one of the things as we were studying anaphylactic shock and allergies, we looked at the prevalence of allergies of a, against a certain allergen in different communities. And the interesting thing, I, I didn't know this prior to doing it, but obviously peanut allergies are a big thing in the United States. We eat a lot of peanut butter in the United States, a lot of it. Peanut allergies are relatively rare in other places in the world where they don't eat a lot of peanut butter, but other things there are allergies to that we don't even think about. Like for example, in France, one of the most prevalent allergies is to mustard. I mean, could you imagine being allergic to mustard? But apparently in France, that's a thing. They use a lot of mustard in French sauces and French food. So as a result, the exposure to mustard in utero through dietary intake from the mother is bigger. Just to say, I mean, in the United States, peanut butter is big. Shellfish allergies are a big deal in countries like Japan, where they have a lot of dietary exposure to shellfish during pregnancy because they eat a lot of fish and eat a lot of shellfish. So it does appear, at least you know, at the surface, that dietary intake by the mother during pregnancy, likely coupled with stress, likely mm -hmm. coupled with something else, because the mother's not allergic to it, but it somehow programs the child to become allergic. Yeah. It sounds very much like the gut is an important avenue here because a lot of it is a dietary response or from the gut potentially as a source of that initial or secondary activation of that immune reaction. So just aligns with the idea that the gut is really important here when it comes to figuring out that immune response or triggering that immune response overall. Well, let's, I mean, think about it. We often talk about the fact that a huge percentage of your immune cells in your body are in your digestive system. I and mean, it's, it's the primary path of non-self through the body. So it's not surprising that the immune system would be lined up around that pathway, especially since the barrier is in some cases only one cell thick. So it's really important to have a lot of immune cells around. So it's not surprising that that exposure could activate and prime your, your macrophages and other immune cells in that tissue. By the same token, it's also a huge way in which we interact with the world. Yes, we interact with air around us, but you know we wear clothing. We actually don't interact with a lot of things in our world that aren't cleaned and sanitized and other, but we do with our food. So it's just a really regular occurrence. And the other piece of it, which I think is really important is, the enteric nervous system, it's called the, your little brain, your second brain, is a tremendously large group of neurons that really surround your entire digestive system and interact with your brain through the vagus nerve. So it's not surprising that there's a connection. It's the brain-gut axis. So all of that is likely at least related to, if not causative, in why it is that dietary intake of food can lead to allergies if it's coupled with stress or exercise or other things, I actually had a one-time experience in my life of a basically an allergic response to shellfish. And I don't know if many people are aware of this, but there is the possibility of a shellfish response in an otherwise non-allergic individual if it's coupled with an exposure to another allergen or extreme exercise. And so I'll tell you, I was a teenager. I was lifting weights heavily. I was with a friend. We had had dinner. The dinner included shellfish. I then went out with him after dinner, and we had a really vigorous workout in the garage of a friend that I'd never been to that person's garage to work out in, in his gym. And about 45 minutes into the workout, I started having a full-blown reaction that literally ended up covering my entire body in hives. Wow. Never affected my throat, never affected breathing or anything like that. But I mean, I literally looked like I had just rolled around in poison ivy for a month wow. and just hives everywhere. It was very rapid how well, how quickly it went away. 
but it was the equivalent of a, you know, sort of a cutaneous version of an anaphylactic reaction. So it's crazy. Like I'm thinking back to my childhood and my brother, and there's instances of something similar like that happening. And it makes sense with vigorous exercise because we do have an immune system reduction when we are heavily stressed and heavy exercise is a sympathetic activity. No question. We're pushing ourselves into the sympathetic nervous system or that state heavily. And so we're priming the immune system to be on guard, ready to attack anything that could come in. And then adding in the shellfish, adding in potential allergens that were present in the other friend's garage, pairing it, coupling it together, there's going to be a potential response in that way. And I'm looking back and seeing instances like that for me, there was a very interesting reaction. The first time I realized I had a bit of a pet dander allergy that triggered my asthma, and yes, I am or had been asthmatic in the past, it was during chiropractic college, we had gone down to a friend's condo downtown Toronto, and she had a bunny. And her bunny shed quite a lot of dander. And within about 15 minutes of being in her condo, had a full-blown allergy, asthma-style reaction. I was wheezing. I was puffy. My eyes were getting watery and puffy. I was actually having like a full allergic asthmatic attack. And I had to literally A, head outside to breathe air, but I was still wheezing. I had to go and actually get antihistamines to shut that response down really quickly across the street. So very similar concept to what you were experiencing there as well. I've had similar experiences with cats. Almost exactly the same experience was out visiting a friend in California and was a friend of my sister's who had a cat and she and her husband were sort of at work for the afternoon and I was stuck home with the cat and I had to literally sit outside after about 30 or 40 minutes. I had to sit outside. Same thing. I could hear myself wheezing and uh, I spent the afternoon outside avoiding the cat so I could (laughs) breathe. So yeah. And otherwise, not really, you know, not an allergic person myself in general, but those are a couple of experiences in my life. And so exercise can induce it. Pet dander can induce it. But the question is, how does your autonomic nervous system and your immune system function together to exacerbate it, to make it worse? And how can we modulate those to make it better? And that was really the genesis of the work that I did in the field really started with that first paper in which they had taken animals, in this case, dogs, and sensitized them to an allergen and then showed that by modulating how that autonomic nervous system functioned, they could alter the response. Now, it was kind of strange because in the study that I read about that came out of Russia, they had cut the vagus nerve. And we know that the work that Kevin Tracy did subsequently in the year 2000 seemed to show that cutting the vagus nerve could exacerbate a systemic inflammatory response. But in Russia, it was the opposite. By cutting the vagus nerve, they were able to stop the anaphylactic reaction enough that the animals could survive. And we then took that idea and went and did our own research, created some animals that became sensitized. In this case, it was rabbits, created sensitized animals, and then showed that simply by stimulating the nerve, we didn't have to cut it, by stimulating it, we could have the animals survive the anaphylactic challenge. And that was in contrast with animals that didn't get the stimulation, who did not survive the challenge. Fortunately, we didn't have to do that with too many animals to satisfy ourselves at least that we were onto something, but it was, it was pretty remarkable. And subsequent to that, there's been dozens of cases in my own house, in fact, where we've used vagus nerve stimulation as a, I wouldn't say a complete treatment because we still go to the emergency room. We still do the things we we're supposed to do. But in terms of the symptom relief, it's virtually immediate. I've sat with my daughter who had you know reactions and had her just sort of laugh you know, sort of spontaneously laugh at the fact that like, how does it do that? How does vagus nerve stimulation literally stop that the progressive feeling in my throat, in my lungs, that I can't breathe or it's tightening up? It stops it like immediately. Still other responses and reactions that happen, but it's nice to know that you have at least that, you know, along with an EpiPen, 
you know, and um, there's been lots of times where we've not used the EpiPen and just used the vagus nerve stimulator to manage the situation. And that's really, really cool to hear. Let's talk a little bit about some of the parallels between allergies, asthma, and eczema and how they kind of create the response. And then we can talk more about how vagus nerve function overall is involved in the regulation of those responses. Sure. So you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of commonality to these responses. In fact, we talked before getting on online, we talked about the fact that eczema is sometimes referred to as asthma of the skin. All of these things can be exacerbated by stress. In fact, stress can trigger an asthma attack. We talked a little bit ago about the fact that stress can cause hives and rashes and skin responses. It can cause, you know, it can cause your allergies to get worse. People have, you know, lots of responses to emotional or mental stress that are physiological. Pain is a perfect example. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the activation of the immune system in a specific way that is associated with allergy. And that occurs either in your sinuses, in your upper airways, it can sort of move down your airways into your lungs and you have bronchospasm, you have this vasomotor response that is constriction and edema and other things that are really like, if you think about it, it's sort of like the congestion, not of your sinuses, but of your lungs and your lung tissue. And then with respect to eczema, it's a little different because you don't have the same structures like that, but you have this itchiness, what we call hypersensitivity or hyperreactivity. They talk about hyperreactive airways or hyperreactive skin responses that lead to hives and other things that are really disruptive because then you start scratching it and it makes it worse because now you're breaking the skin and now there's an opportunity for bacteria or other things to get into the skin and sort of perpetuate that immune response. And so it's really important. That's why creams and other things that you put on eczema are helpful, not necessarily maybe the steroid creams, and obviously there's an anti-inflammatory piece, but sometimes it's just moistening the skin and encouraging a barrier to remain even though you've been scratching. We used to tell my daughter when she was suffering with it, eczema and it was pretty bad, that just rub the skin, don't scratch it. And it's really difficult because there's this almost instinctive response that you want to scratch as opposed to just rub. And if you think about it, I mean, there it really should be just as effective to rub versus scratch, but there's that almost nervous system, and we call it a nervous system response, to scratch instead of rub. That's really interesting to hear. Is there a specific pathway that we can talk about regarding that? You feel an itch, you want to scratch it type of? Well, yeah, I will, I'll frame it in the phone because it's really interesting. So I think we've shared before on other podcasts, the fact that my daughter has been using the device for a long time. She's the one who has the allergies to eggs, but she also has, she was born with infant eczema and it got progressively worse and she had a variety of different symptoms and it got pretty bad. It got to the point where she was regularly breaking the skin and it was scarring and especially her legs. And we were very upset and wanted to figure out a way to relieve her of that. We began using vagus nerve stimulation on her for her headaches and for other things, but also we found that it rapidly affected the atopic dermatitis slash eczema that she was experiencing. I mean, within a matter of, I would say three days, and she might even say two days, it had that type of response. But there were things that would trigger it to come back. I mean, even in the face of using it, if she skipped a day of using it or ate the wrong things or was stressed about something, you could see that it was causing her to scratch more and, and getting back into that. And so there happened to be one day, I remember, it was right after Halloween. Uh, we had been over at my brother-in-law's house and she had eaten a lot of candy and a lot of things that she probably shouldn't have and fell asleep on the car ride home. And so we didn't have the heart to wake her up just to, you know, just to do the vagus nerve stimulation. So we let her sleep. And that next morning when I went in to wake her up to go to school, she was scratching in her sleep. And so I woke her up because we had to get her, you know, get ready to go to school and all that kind of stuff. And I said to her, I said, instead of, we usually would do it right before she went to school. I said, do you want to stim now? And she said, yeah, I do. And I remember, I mean, as clear as day, this was five, six, seven years ago. I remember putting 
the device on her, stimulate the vagus nerve, and even telling her, stop scratching, stop scratching. And she could, she's like, I can't. And I turned it on, we started, and I could see in her eyes that the relief was instantaneous. And I hadn't expected that. I had always thought that it was more of a progressive thing. It maybe take a few minutes. You know, just imagine from a circulatory perspective, you'd expect even if it was instantaneous in the location where you were treating, that it would take time for that anti-inflammatory effect to take on. It didn't. It was immediate. And I said to her, I said, how quickly does it relieve the itch? How quickly did that go away? She said, oh, no, no, it's immediate. I mean, and she didn't say it that way. She was, you know, she was a kid, but she she sort of described it as, you know, she's feeling it all over her body. And then once the stimulation of the vagus nerve stimulation starts, it just is an instantaneous wash over her body of no more itch. And I thought to myself, that was really an interesting perspective because it wasn't intuitive for me. Because as I said, my intuition was that it was more of a slower process and that the underlying reasons for the itch were local. They were part of the inflammation that was going on locally. But what the way she described it, the only thing that could be instantaneous across her entire body that way was a nervous system response. So what it was doing was by stimulating the vagus nerve, which as we all talk about is in the neck, it's on its way up to the brain, that that stimulation went right into the brain and where the itch was being experienced, where everything we experience really occurs in our brains, where the itch was occurring was in the brain. The brain was perceiving what was going on in the skin and then layering on top of that an itch. So the itch isn't in the body. Mm-hmm. It's a the itch is in your brain. Yeah, your brain is perceiving your skin as itchy, but the itch is actually happening in your brain. And so by stimulating the vagus nerve, we were able to suppress that. And you know, it's likely through descending inhibition and the upregulation of norepinephrine and serotonin and GABA. I mean, that's likely how it works. But just to be able to observe it and say, wow, it relieved my daughter in seconds. That was really cool. And it it gave me insight into where that, you know, what the symptom of the inflammation is really being experienced. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. That's really cool. The neuromodulation being the likely physiological pathway by which it stopped, but seeing it in a practical sense, seeing it actually play out in real time, nothing cooler than that. I very much appreciate that for sure. And it's very similar to what we see with patients who have asthma Mm -hmm. and and the animal models, as well as the patients. I'll give you an example. The very first study we did in asthma, we didn't have the non-invasive approach. The approach we were using was percutaneous. So we had these patients who were suffering with asthma attacks at home. They had used albuterol, they had used medications, and they showed up at the emergency room because everything was failing. And they began using nebulized steroids and breathing systems and things that you only have in generally only have in the emergency room and trying to get the medication in to relax the tissue. And, you know, for about 500,000 people a year, that's not sufficient. And they end up being admitted into the hospital. And it's interesting, the amount of time on average that a person who is admitted to the hospital because of having an asthma attack. The amount of time is longer than if you were to have a spinal fusion done. It's actually about 10% longer. You're spending days in the hospital dealing with that asthma attack. And that usually follows up to 24 hours in the emergency room too, because they don't even count that time. So it's a lot of time and it's really risky and people do die of it. And it's very expensive to manage because they're in the ICU, because anytime you can't breathe properly, you're in the ICU. So we were dealing with very sick patients. These were patients who had failed everything before you have to get admitted. So the the next step, if our intervention had failed, very likely the next step was to be in the hospital, potentially intubated in the ICU for days. And so what we did was we percutaneously placed a lead in the neck. At the time, again, it's just like my daughter's situation with the eczema. The thought was 
that the therapy was going to need to be on for hours. So the original protocol actually had the therapy on for three hours to see if it would be effective. And so we had these patients, we percutaneously placed the lead in through the skin, into the neck, in the vicinity of the carotid artery, use ultrasound guidance, et cetera, to get it positioned you know, relatively close to the vagus nerve. And then we had an external stimulator box and we begin turning up the amplitude on the, on. but what we heard from the physicians was it was instantaneous. The moment they would be turning it up slowly and the patient was hunched over and then there would be an immediate response and the immediate response, they would sit back with sort of wide-eyed and look at the doctor and say, what did you do? I can breathe. And they would say, wow, my lungs are 10 feet wide. It's amazing. And that response didn't take three hours. It happened like instantly. And so we ended up having to change our protocol, bring it back down, bring it down to just a few minutes. And we had patients who like pulled the lead out themselves and you know <laughs> said, I'm cured. I can go. So that the same kind of experience that my daughter had, it was instantaneous. And anything that's instantaneous that happens in the body has to be neurological. It can't be anything that's associated with the circulation. It's neurological. So, you know, to the extent that the brain can perceive something differently like itch or actually physically change your ability to breathe, relax the muscles so you can breathe because that's what's going on. In bronchoconstriction, it's muscles, and the muscles are constricting because they're being controlled by nerves. And if the nerves change how they're responding, it can be instantaneous. And so that's the kind of response that we were seeing, and it's very similar across all these different conditions. The itch, the asthma, same thing with allergies. What we saw in the allergies was, you know, whether it be hay fever and sinuses opening up. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen somebody use a stimulator and sort of look at me and say, I remember one, one person said, hey, does this fix a deviated septum? I said, why do you say that? And they said, because I haven't breathed through both nostrils in probably 10 years. And I am breathing clearly through both of them. That I've been, you know, they want to go in and they want to do a nose job on me to fix my deviated septum. And this is working. And it was instantaneous. So it clearly shows that it's all really a neurological issue. It's really interesting because nothing else in the body can have a response that quickly, right? Our blood flow is not that quick. Our hormone system is not that quick. Our digestive system is absolutely not that quick. There's no other response in the body that could happen that quickly. And so neurologically, it must be if it happens that quickly. And so that's really cool to hear that the immune system, or at least at the neurological level, responds that quickly to stimulation via the vagus nerve. Yeah. And I would say it's one of the interesting things is you can have an anaphylactic reaction in seconds. I mean, your body can respond to eating something wrong. And within seconds, I mean, I remember my daughter, I mean, she's got uh, several different allergies. She put something in her mouth that had walnuts in it. And it was less than a minute later, it was her lip was swollen, looked like she'd been, you know, gone three rounds with Mike Tyson. I mean, it just blew up like a balloon. Yeah. And to be able to react that, I mean, frankly, even going, you know, three rounds with Mike Tyson wouldn't cause that to swell as quickly as it did as a result of the exposure to the allergen. Yeah. Same way you have with certain, you know, drugs that can be, you know, they used to be that contrast dye was something that was somewhat allergic. And every once in a while, you'd have somebody who would get a contrast dye for some imaging study, and they were allergic to it, and they would have an anaphylactic reaction and die within 30 seconds. Yeah. Just literally, imagine going in, having you know dye put in your arm because you're going to get an x-ray, and you're dead. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's difficult to imagine after you're dead, but that's what happens so quickly. There has to be a nervous system response. It has to include the nervous system because you can't do that much damage that quickly without the nervous system being involved. And by the same token, you can't solve a problem that quickly 
without the nervous system being involved. So I just look at it from a phenomenological standpoint. It's it like a fail-safe switch. Yeah, it has to be. It, it, it has to be that. So My mom worked for 35 years as a nuclear medicine technologist and was involved in the injection of dyes every single day for those 35 years while she was at work. And she has some stories of reactions that occurred and they had to have EpiPens on standby all the time because you never know somebody could react very easily to one of those dyes. So this isn't a rare, rare occurrence. These things happened for sure. And it was sad, but also really interesting to hear these stories from my mom as well. The good news is for everybody out there who's thinking to himself, oh my God, I'm never going to get caught. They have changed the dyes. Yes. It happens much, much, much less frequently. It's still possible, but it is not something that's, you know, I mean, nowadays, somebody who's in nuclear medicine, if they ever saw one in their his or her career, it would be, you know, be sort of rare. Yeah. So it's much better. But you're right. You know, 20 years ago, those dyes, you know, you were going in and there was, you know, there was a chance that it was going to live up to its name as a dye. As a dye, man. So. This is really cool to unpack the mechanisms by which these allergies, asthma and eczema all can occur. You mentioned that you had a couple of good stories with regards to asthma with vagus nerve stimulation in some of the work that you've done. Why don't we unpack a couple of those? Sure. So we did that first study in asthma with the expectation it was going to take three hours. And as I said, the doctors were giving us feedback that it was happening very, very rapidly. But one of the doctors, this is around the time that we first developed a way to do it non-invasively, we held a meeting with all sorts of investigators, clinical investigators, to hear the results and to discuss the next steps in a study to treat asthma. And I remember it was being held in New Jersey at a hotel. We had the conference room and one of the main speakers was the physician who had been sort of the lead enroller of our first pilot study. And he himself had asthma and he had flown out for the meeting sitting next to a person. It was a couple hour flight. And he had been sitting next to a woman who had worn a lot of perfume and it really aggravated his airways. And he was a physician and he had forgotten to bring his albuterol. So he had basically been suffering with a low level of bronchospasm going on throughout the meeting. Nobody knew it. He sort of managed it pretty well. And then at the very end of the meeting, he had an exacerbation of his asthma that got really serious. He started coughing. He started struggling. I mean, he turned red. There were other physicians there who were, you know, watching this and saying, this is not good. And we had a couple of people running around the, the hotel trying to find, you know, the albuterol. And I don't know why I did this. I, I just said, you know, we've got our prototype here of the device. He's a physician. Do you want to try it? Do you want to try it? And he, you know, red faced, struggling to breathe, nodded and said, yes. So we sat down in a chair and we wheeled over at the time. It was a pretty big device and wheeled it over and he put it on his neck. And 20 seconds later, he said, okay, it's over. I'm good. I mean, everybody in the room who, trust me, we were all in super sympathetic overdrive at that point. We were in fight or flight mode, no question about it. But it was so cool to see him just sit there. And we thought there was a chance we were going to have to call the ambulance for him. He was going to the hospital. And 20 seconds later, he just sort of pulled it away from his neck. He said, yep, I'm good now. It's gone. And I mean, that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. And again, 20 seconds. It had been building for hours, maybe even a day. The exacerbation was going on for 15 minutes before we did this. 20 seconds. And he just, yep, I'm good. And we all looked at him like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? Yep. And he was fine. Got on the flight, flew home. He was fine. So that was one. There was another example. I think I've talked about it before, but I'll say briefly. The very first time we had a non-invasive approach was with a nerve con- velocity conduction testing machine that we bought, $80,000. 
And we had a guy in the office who had asthma and he tried it out and he put it on his neck and it was instantaneous. He just went from suffering with an asthma attack to, Hey, it's gone instantaneously. Like he just sort of sat back and said, wow, it's gone. So it's a very, very rapid response. Again, not everybody's responsive to it, but when it happens, it's very rapid. It's, you know, many people sit back and say, my lungs have never felt this wide. Uh, no matter what I've used, albuterol, it doesn't make me feel this good. So it can be pretty exciting. You know, talking to somebody, talk to a cluster headache sufferer whose wife had asthma. And he said, you know, how cool it is that he let his wife use the device when she was having an asthma attack. And he said, I was sitting next to her, listening to her wheeze. And she put it on her neck and the wheezing stopped like instantly. He said, it just went from, she was breathing, put it on her neck and no longer could I hear her breathing. It was that fast. So. That's so cool. Yeah. Really exciting stuff. It's really cool that we're able to modulate that response and create relief from these things that often just required medication to be able to manage them for long periods of time. It's just such a cool concept and such a wonderful discovery, I think, for the future of healthcare. Well, you know, I agree. And one of the things you just said, I want to riff on people have been using medication to manage these things. And we were approached by a group of physicians from the UK around the work that we had done in asthma and talking about, you know, chronic cough and other problems that are similar where you have these reactive airways. And one of the things that I really learned from them and really hit home was the fact that the longer you use and the more frequently that you use bronchodilators like albuterol or the similar you know, analogs to that, the more you use it, the more dependent you become on it. And it actually makes you more reactive. So, and what I mean by that is that if you have a threshold for activating your asthma attack, that's, you know, I'm going to put a number on it. It's a five. And you then have an asthma attack and you use albuterol to break that asthma attack. So now you're breathing fine. What's happened is over time, your threshold comes down. Now you might be at a four. So something less severe can suddenly cause you to have that kind of reaction, that response. And then it becomes a three. And they talk about the fact that people who die of asthma, and there are thousands of people a year in the United States who die of asthma attacks, many times they're found while having the albuterol can in their hand that they've been trying. And yet they've become so dependent on it and they've become so reactive that they've become what they refer to it as an unstable asthmatic. Yeah, You're no longer capable of getting the stability from this. And the thing that they wanted to study was whether or not vagus nerve stimulation used in that setting as a bronchodilator, you know, to relieve the bronchospasm, whether or not that would have the same effect or whether it would go in the other direction. And that's where steroids get used. You have people who are using albuterol as their rescue inhaler, but then they're on a steroid because the steroid is supposed to change that threshold and bring it up so yeah. that you now have a higher threshold. So you're constantly battling between the albuterol as the rescue inhaler that's making you more sensitive and the steroid that's making you less sensitive, but you can't stay on the steroid forever. So what they were estimating, and they believed, and I believe it as well, is that the mechanism by which vagus nerve stimulation works isn't pushing you in two different directions. It's simply making you immediately less responsive. So yeah. you immediately have a break of the attack. But you also have, over time, a reduction in your sensitivity. Right. So the hope is that you can actually raise that threshold and hold it there if you continually use it over and over again. The, the question I have, and this is an open question, and it's if there's an investigator out there who'd be interested in studying this, I would be happy to advocate for it, which is that is it possible to desensitize yourself from the allergen. So for example, if you have a peanut allergy, right. is it possible to use the stimulation and use small doses of exposure 
mm-hmm. to the allergen, progressively increasing the dosing of that so that you can actually eliminate your sensitivity to it. You've taken your threshold from what's really zero all the way up. So now if somebody accidentally you know, drops a peanut in your ice cream and you eat it, you're not going to have an anaphylactic reaction. You might still get sick to your stomach, but we've desensitized you enough so that you can have it and not worry about it being life-threatening. Right. Again, I don't know that to be the case. I don't know that it's possible. There's some suggestion in the literature and some of the other things that I've seen that it is possible to do that. But I do know that as a prevention, it works. You can, If you think there's a risk that you're going to encounter something, you can pre-dose yourself and then go. And then if you do get exposed, you've sort of protected yourself. Okay. That protection lasts for hours. It's kind of nice. But again, I would tell you, there's no clear clinical data yet proving it. I'd love to have the opportunity to prove that and maybe bring that to the market along with all the other things that Vegas nerve stimulation can do. You mentioned stress a while ago as being a potential trigger for a lot of these responses, allergies, asthma, and eczema. I believe a a reason for that is the innate cortisol response that we create, right? When we get into a stress state, we initially will have an autonomic response towards the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight is activated. We will then actually send a signal up via the hypothalamus down back to the adrenals where we produce cortisol. And cortisol's job is to help you handle the stress in the moment. It does a couple of very specific things. It goes to the liver and it triggers gluconeogenesis. It triggers the production of new glucose. But cortisol is a steroid. It's cortisol. And its job is to dysregulate or downregulate the immune response. What that does is it lowers a threshold by which any allergen can come in and trigger a response or a sensitivity. And so this is an interesting method by which we can help to, with vagus nerve stimulation, lower the cortisol response, lower the initial kind of stress reaction, push us from that sympathetic to the parasympathetic state. And in doing so, by reducing the circulating cortisol levels, we're more likely to increase the size of that threshold that is required for an allergen to create an anaphylactic or allergic or asthmatic response. It's just mechanistically, it makes a whole lot of sense that when we trigger that vagus nerve, when we leave vagus nerve activated, when we activate that parasympathetic cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, we're likely to have this regulating effect because we're in this immediate short-term acute scenario slowing down the reaction using the acetylcholine that's going to be pumped out to the immune system. We're neuromodulating at the central level in the CNS, and we're also priming us to not be in that sympathetic state as often, allowing for that long-term response and the rising or increasing the size of that threshold in the long-term. Yeah, stress and the cortisol that you're talking about, and there's a bunch of other stress responses that occur all have an effect of trying to prepare you or deal with an emergency. There's a perception, you know, not consciously, and sometimes it's conscious, but sometimes it's it's subconscious. There's a physiological perception that your body is under assault. And the response that needs to be mounted is dysregulated also. It's the response to dust shouldn't be your inability to breathe. Yes. Now, would it be appropriate? I think the answer is yes. This was a rhetorical question, but would it be appropriate for your lungs to seal themselves off if you were in a room filled with cyanide gas? Well, yes, obviously that would make sense because the, the consequence of you breathing it in would be you were dying. But the response shouldn't be to dust. Dust and and flower pollen shouldn't cause you to have that type of response. So there's a dysregulator or inappropriateness to the response. It's not an unnatural response. It's still a response that your body is having. It's misperceiving the threat. And so 
if you are perceiving a threat, and again, threats can be physical, they can be emotional, they can be mental, they can be future threats. If you are stressed about something, you know, do something wrong at work, and all of a sudden you think your job's at risk, you're going to be stressed. That stress can lead you to have difficulty breathing. Panic attacks are an example, you know, panic attacks, you have trouble breathing. Do you have asthma? No, but you're having an asthma-like response because you're having difficulty breathing because of the stress and because your inappropriate stress response. It's not lethal, it's not going to kill you, but panic attacks are certainly for people who have them, they feel a lot like you're having a heart attack, feel a lot like you have an asthma attack, like you can't breathe, like you're claustrophobic and all the rest. So stress is a potent trigger of that emergency response. The question is whether or not your autonomic nervous system and your immune system are primed to respond with an overwhelming force. You know, is it right to respond to what is, you know, I liken it to, you know, somebody has broken into your house to steal something out of your garage. Is it the appropriate response to, you know, I don't know, to kill him and his family and his and his friend? No, of course it's not. It's not. It's not. It, that's completely inappropriate. And yet that if you hit the wrong person, if you try to steal something from the wrong person's house, he's sensitized. He's going to respond to that emergency in a way that's far beyond what's appropriate. Yeah. And it's like having an allergic reaction. It's an emotional allergic reaction. In fact, I think that's probably a good way to describe a lot of things that are happening in society when they're, you know, when people respond inappropriately, it's almost like a social allergy. You're having an inappropriate response. It's not inappropriate in a different circumstance, but it's inappropriate in that situation. And that's what PTSD is. If you want to think about it in a certain sense, you're responding to a stressful situation with overwhelming force because you've been sensitized to it because prior experience, prior sensitization has suggested this is something that requires that level of response, even when it doesn't. So all of these things are really, if you bring them back, I mean, I I bet you weren't expecting to tie PTSD and, you know, psychopathic responses to things to eczema and asthma, but ultimately it's your autonomic nervous system mischaracterizing the threat level and responding with an immune or autonomic nervous system response that is overly violent. It's far beyond, it's orders of magnitude beyond the scale of what it should. And that can happen in your lungs, it can happen in your brain, it can happen in your skin, it can happen in your sinuses, it can happen really anywhere in your body. I mean, stress causes, you know, gastrointestinal problems. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, that if you have an autoimmune disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, even if you're in remission, even if you're asymptomatic, emotional stress, social stress can trigger a flare-up. It can trigger a flare or it can trigger rise in inflammatory markers. Again, stress is a big player in all of these things, including allergies. Absolutely. I think this is a great way to kind of tie up this conversation. You've clearly hit the nail on the head here with stress being a driver for all of these different conditions. And we can tie together the response that we have on something like a PTSD to an allergy or an asthma. It absolutely is something that we can tie to it. Obviously, the mechanism is similar. The affected tissue is different. The affected area is different, but the mechanism is very similar in how that condition lights up or starts up. It's an inappropriate response and inappropriate inflammatory trigger or inflammatory response to the trigger or the stressing event, period. Yeah. And the great way to attack this, and we've talked this about this with multiple guests we've had, is get the autonomic nervous system out of that fight or flight mode. Get your immune system to do the same because they're tied together. You can have a fight or flight mode that's neurologic, and that's going to trigger and be tied to a fight or flight mode that's immunologic. So get those two systems, two of the most important systems that exist in your body, your autonomic nervous system and your innate immune system, get them refocused 
on a less emergency type response. Yeah. And as a result, you will experience fewer of the symptoms associated with that emergency response system. And so we, you know, we've talked about lots of different ways to do that. Relaxation techniques, meditation, exercise, maybe not while you're doing the exercise, but in the aftermath of the exercise, it's almost like that hormesis response where you stress yourself, but as a result, it makes you more capable of release of being relaxed, sleeping properly, the correct diet, because we certainly know that there's lots of things in the modern diet that can trigger inflammation just associated chemically. So you want to move your entire body into that better mode, but it's tough to do that. If you're on the road two weeks out of the month and you're eating out and you can't control the ingredients that are in the food you're eating and you don't have the time and the discipline to do all the things you have to do for meditation or Tai Chi or exercise or, you know, frankly, with all that travel, you're not going to get the right sleep. If you have the ability to force those two systems into where you want them yeah. using a device like a vagus nerve stimulator, pushing it in that direction, it will have profound benefits. Profound benefits because, as we said, everything from PTSD to IBS to eczema, asthma, all of those things are exacerbated by stress. And to the extent that you can reduce the stress, you can get yourself into that rest, digest, restore, rebuild mode. That's what you need to do. That just optimizes your health and reduces the risk that you're going to be unhealthy in one of these inappropriate emergency responses. I can't think of a better way to tie that all up in a nice bow. This was a wonderful episode. Great insights here. And if you got to this point in the episode, thank you for listening. And please share this with one person who you think could use this information to positively upgrade their health. Have a great day and we'll catch you on the next one. 